Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. My name is Gabby Campbell, and I'm the host of this podcast. I would like to say thank you so, so much to all of our listeners for supporting me and supporting the podcast. It has been such an exciting about eight or nine months now that I've been, you know, recording episodes for the podcast, and it truly is such a joy. I love sharing it with the world. So thank you to all of our new listeners, new followers on Instagram. I really appreciate it. Um, But before I get into this week's episode, I want to let you know about a fundraising campaign that I started. Um, My birthday is coming up, and really this year, I don't feel like I want as many presents. And really, the best present that I could possibly imagine would be raising money for a cause that's really near and dear to my heart. And that is um, my local animal shelter, the Santa Barbara Humane Society, where I adopted my sweet daisy dog from you know, just knowing that I could, like, help support and donate so that other dogs or cats like Daisy, you know, are taken off the street and given the medical care they need. So, I've started a GoFundMe that all of the proceeds go directly from GoFundMe straight to the Santa Barbara Humane Society. Um, I'll have the link in the episode notes as well as it's in my Instagram bio. I've uh, tweeted on Twitter, on Facebook. So, if you can't find it, please message me. Anyway, Um, It would mean so much to me if you could consider donating even a small amount or just sharing the campaign to others. It means so much. And the Santa Barbara Humane Society has actually on their website posted, you know, kind of like a criteria of how the different donations help them. So really any amount helps. Uh, About $15 can help with an important vaccine or deworming for these animals, $25. um, It gives them a microchip with lifetime registration. $80 can help get vaccines for multiple dogs or cats, and $100 can help clear up a respiratory infection. $200 can help them get x-rays, anesthesia, or other critical surgical needs. So we've already raised some money. I'm going to have this fundraiser going through April. So please check them out, the Santa Barbara Humane Society. They're wonderful. And um, next order of business before we get into the episode is I haven't done one of these in a while, and it's because I've actually been finishing up my winter quarter at UC Santa Barbara. And as of today, I just finished my last final. Woo, very exciting. Now I'm on spring break. Anyway, the book that I um, actually had to read for one of my classes this quarter that I fell in love with and has kind of taken me down this path of like getting other books about peoples in the Ice Age. Anyway, it's called The Cave Painters, and it's by Gregory Curtis. And it's about, um, describes it as the probing the mysteries of the world's first artists. So it's set, you know, in the Pleistocene, which was about 1.8 million years ago to 10,000 years ago, learning about, you know, the artistic expression of these early humans. And it's really, really a wonderful book. I would highly recommend it, particularly if you're also interested in art. It's not Um, like a primarily archaeology-based book. It really has to do with the interpretation of the art in the painted caves of southern France and Spain in the Pleistocene. So yeah, definitely check that out. Um, I don't remember if I said it, but it's by Gregory Curtis. And now, this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast, we got all that out of the way, is with the wonderful Dr. Jennifer Miller. Now, I was so thankful. She's an international guest. She lives in Germany that she was able to take the time to record with me. She was so enthusiastic, just bursting with passion. Such a fun person to interview. And I really hope that you guys can see that in this interview. She's super talented, got so much insight on these ostrich eggshell beads. She's really, you know, a specialist. Not very many people in the world study them. Just a very unique 
uh, specialty that she has, and she does such a wonderful job explaining it. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Just a reminder, I always have links to the people, um, fundraisers, to you know uh, the American Anthropology Association in the episode notes, as well as my Instagram and Twitter that you can follow for more behind-the-scenes content. So without further ado, we'll have a word from our sponsor of the podcast, Anchor, and then we'll get into Dr. Jennifer Miller. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. Um, this week I have joining me Dr. Miller. I am so happy that she is here today. So thank you so much for joining us. And I would love if we could start the episode by you just briefly introducing yourself and a quick overview of what you study and where you work. Cool. Thank you so much for inviting me, Gabby. This is really exciting. Um, so my name is Dr. Jennifer Miller. I, broadly, I'm an, ar- an archaeologist. Um, More specifically, I'm a paleolithic archaeologist or a paleoanthropologist, and I focus on the evolution of modern humans. So currently, I'm at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History um, and kind of focusing on the Middle and Later Stone Age of Sub-Saharan Africa, although my personal specialization is in symbolic artifacts from Africa. Well, I um, was just thought it was so fascinating when I came across you and your area of research, particularly because I think my interest in Paleolithic um, anthropologists has kind of zoomed in just because I'm currently taking a Peoples of the Ice class. Oh, Peoples of the Ice Age class with uh, Dr. Sarah McClure at UCSB. And so it's really kind of introduced me to a lot of the themes and human evolution that comes with, you know, those early humans. Uh, So um, I follow you on Twitter and you shared this really sweet picture of you as a young girl when you got you, when you finally got your PhD and you described it as this like very full circle moment. So I'm super interested to hear a bit more about how you became interested in human evolution when you were younger and then how it inspired you to pursue a career in archaeology. Yeah, it's, it was such a, a cool little coincidence that happened just before I was getting my PhD. So I've kind of always been interested in mysteries, in um, riddles, puzzles, you know, things that require some kind of thinking to them. Um, and so it, it happened very naturally when I was in grade one, someone, unfortunately, I don't remember who, gave me an educational book as a gift. And it happened to be about human history, human evolution. And so it was actually full of um, really factual information, but in a way that was really accessible to a kid. And so that that book in from first grade has always kind of been in the back of my mind. And it sort of, um, you know, spurned this interest in thinking about people and how they lived in the past and how, you know, some, some people like Neanderthals aren't around anymore, um, but we are, what was the difference and what was it like to live there in the past? So as I was about to complete my PhD, I found the book again at my parents' house and I hadn't seen it in, you know, like 20 years or something. Um, And when I, you know, I was flipping through it and I remembered all of it. And then I looked at the cover and the consultant was Chris Stringer, who is a huge figure in paleoanthropology and has been, you know, like a a hero of mine throughout my, my studies in this in this um, subject area. So it was so amazing to see that even back when I was seven years old, you know, Chris Stringer's influence and this whole paleoanthropological study has been kind of working itself into my brain. I think it's so cool. And I think that I wonder looking back at it, having it been about 20 years, were there, was there some info in that book that you're all, maybe now we have archeological evidence that's kind of furthered our thinking because in the last 50 years, 
the understanding of early humans and early hominin species has changed so much. I mean, even in the time that I've been in college, there's been, you know, new developments. So was that interesting for you looking back with this newfound knowledge from graduate study where you kind of like, oh, you know, these earlier misconceptions, I shouldn't even say misconceptions that we had, but just these early hypotheses that we did have about early humans that may have been, have changed over time. You know what was interesting is it was shockingly still very relevant. That's great. So obviously it didn't have the up-to-date stuff about, you know, Denisovans because they weren't, you know, we didn't know about them then. But when I read through it, I wasn't, you know, cringing at things because it was so much based in fact that it, you know, it had a really solid theoretical foundation and a lot of it still held up very, very well. Even the way it portrayed Neanderthals, it did, um, you know, it did show them as different than modern humans, but not necessarily in a, a cold callous mm -hmm. kind of, you know, they're, they're not smart kind of way. Um, just in a, you know, unfortunately, they didn't survive, even though they still maybe had, you know, burials and access to art and that kind of thing. So it, 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 the book held up really well over 20, probably almost 30 years. That's impressive. Where did you do your graduate studies? Uh, we'll start there and then we can kind of, well, I want to learn more about your experiences during your time as a student. Okay, so I did my graduate studies, my master's and my PhD at the University of Alberta in Canada. And I did them both with the same supervisor, Dr. Pam Willoughby, and she's currently the chair of the anthropology department there. And it was within an anthropology department rather than a specialized archaeology one. So I have kind of this four fields background in my graduate studies, and it's really shaped um, my approach to archaeology and to working in the past with more of, I, I feel like a beneficial kind of holistic perspective. Yeah, definitely. And just in case any of our listeners don't know, the four fields of anthropology are linguistic anthropology, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, and archaeology. I don't think I've ever brought that up on the podcast, so I, I've been trying to give a bit more background information for some of our newer listeners. Um, so what were some of your experiences during your time as a student that really impacted you? Did you have any maybe classes, teachers, field experiences that kind of like shaped your area of study going forward, but also just like you said, your holistic approach to archaeology? There's a specific class I remember in my undergraduate. So in my undergraduate, um, I graduated from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, uh, and that was at the time an archaeology department. So it was a little bit more narrow scope, but a lot more specialized information. And one of the courses in particular that I took, I still think of to this day, and it was called Material Culture Analysis. And it involved looking at all different kinds of material, but also using experimental archaeology as an approach to get a better understanding, a more nuanced understanding of what it was like to be in the past. So we did things like make stone tools, um, we, we got clay from the ground and went through the process of cleaning it, adding temper, shaping it into a vessel with traditional techniques, firing it. We even made a shell bead, which I think kind of inspired my, <laughs> my interest in shell beads going forward. But that class in particular gave me a real hands-on feel um, for what it was like to work you know, with, with archaeological material, and I think a, a kind of different perspective that I still carry with me in my research today in that, you know, these are, it, it can be hard to think of these objects as they were used in their lives, especially when some of them are, you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years old, and the material culture analysis course at SFU really gave me um, this, this kind of shared experience that maybe the people in the past might have had as well, um, trying, to, trying to shape a piece of obsidian and to get it into the shape I wanted, which is remarkably difficult, or um, <laughs> trying to, um, uh, to get little burnt seeds under the microscope or shave off a, a piece of, of burnt wood so we could see the structure of the wood underneath and identify. Um, it, it was a, a really amazing introduction into kind of working with archaeological materials. And then when I got to the University of Alberta for my master's degree in particular, um, my supervisor was very open about pursue whatever 
you find interesting, what draws your interest, even if it's not to do necessarily with her project. And she had some material from her excavations in southern Tanzania in her lab. And she showed me these two ostrich eggshell beads that she had. They were the only ones she had from her site at the time. And I like, oh, I was so amazed by them. And I looked at them under the microscope for hours, these two little beads. And I was like, I, if I could study this, that would just be it. That would be so amazing. And she said to me, you know, that's great that you're interested. Two beads is not enough data for a master's yeah. thesis. Um, but, you know, let's let's plan on some sort of symbolic thesis and uh, and then go to the field and see what we get. And we ended up um, a year into my master's going to the field and getting like 60 or 70 of these beads. And she said, OK, that's enough. You can start yeah. on it. And so that um, her allowing me to kind of follow my interest uh, is really what spurned all of everything that's happened since then. Um, and so I'm so appreciative that that she allows her students to, you know, pursue their passions um, because it's such an important part of driving all of this academic research forward. I completely agree. And I hope, you know, I think that it's a great lesson that you can find something that fits within the project, you know, within the site that may be slightly different, but still relates to the overall themes that you're trying to investigate. Um, What particularly was she working on for her, her project? So she had um, a Canadian government grant to study the evolution of modern humans in this specific region in southern Tanzania. And so she had gone and started working in a new region. She'd done some test excavations. And so she was in the process of analyzing all the material. Now she's a stone tool person. uh, And so there were like thousands of stone tools in the process of being analyzed in the lab. Um, and, and then she had all of this other stuff. So there was a student who was studying the faunal remains. Um, there mm. was a student who was studying like human remains that came from the excavation. And so it just slotted in perfectly that there was nobody else looking at this. And as it turned out, nobody else really academically in the broader research field who was looking at this, yeah. which was both a blessing and a mm. curse starting out. <laughs> Not a ton <laughs> of reference materials. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So you're talking about these ostrich eggshell eggshell beads from the Middle and Late Stone Age Africa. So the one thing that I want to clarify for some of our listeners that may not be as familiar with the chronology of that time, what time, what, how many years ago, what time period are we talking about that you were studying for your graduate work? Great question. So broadly, there's three kind of Stone Age periods. Um, In sub-Saharan Africa, the naming convention is a little bit different. In the rest of the world, it's um, um, lower, middle, and upper Paleolithic. But in sub-Saharan Africa, it's early Stone Age, Middle Stone Age, later Stone Age. So towards the tail end of the Middle Stone Age is when we start to see these kind of developments. And that is anywhere between 30 to 60,000 years ago. Um, it's variable in different places. A paper somewhat recently came out by Ali Sherry saying that they have an 11,000 year old Stone Age in um, Western Africa. But broadly, the period that I study is the tail end of the Middle Stone Age. So from about 50,000 um, into the later Stone Age, which the end of that is also variable, but you know, um, to maybe 5,000 years ago, roughly. Um, is the end of that. So that that 45,000 year chunk of time is, you know, broadly my focus. I appreciate you framing that for us. So as we dive into, you know, what, what, sorry, let me phrase that. Um, So my goodness. (laughs) Saturday morning. Okay, brain. The question's right in front of me. I just need to read it off the page. So what, what about studying these beads tells you, gives you information about the culture and technology of early humans? You know, this is clearly a, a personal ornamentation, um, or actually, is it a personal ornamentation? Or are these beads being used in trade purposes? Uh, that's a fantastic question. So uh, 
let me start a, a little bit yeah. with the earliest history of beads. So the earliest used beads um, in Africa or anywhere are earlier than ostrich eggshell beads. And they tend to be natural shells that were collected on the beach, many of them that already had perforations in them. So the same way that you might walk along the seashore and find a, a pretty shell and pick it up, people were doing that 70, 80, 90,000 years ago um, in the extreme northern and southern ends of Africa. And um, those were the first beads. And there's evidence that they would put them on strings and suspend them presumably for wear on the body. And then about 50,000 years ago, they started shaping beads made from ostrich eggshell. And so um, all of them from 50,000 years ago to present all across Africa and throughout Asia have this kind of rounded shape. They're usually less than one centimeter in diameter. It's a very, very standardized concept of what a bead is. And so these ostrich eggshell beads really mark the first appearance of a standardized ornament system that could have a shared symbolic meaning because it was so consistent across time. Um, and so obviously all beads are going to presume the, wear, the uh, use of a thread or cordage and some sort of system of knots. And uh, also some ability to drill through material. Now ostrich eggshell is not super difficult to drill through. The inside of it is actually quite soft, um, but it does suggest, you know, the either holding it in the hand or maybe attached hafted to a, a drill, like a bow drill that they might use to start a fire, that sort of technology. And uh, a really the important thing about ostrich eggshell beads is that they suggest the need for this symbolic unspoken communication. And so it, it suggests that we might have start to have a larger group size than we'd had in the past. So we don't really need with our immediate family to communicate information through symbolic ornaments. So for example, uh, a wedding ring is a fairly common one. It's something that uh, lots of people wear to indicate that they're married. And this is our close family doesn't need this sort of information. However, people from a similar culture who you encounter infrequently would need this sort of information. Mm -hmm. And so ostrich eggshell beads in their evolution is kind of suggesting that there might be something more happening with the ideas that we need to communicate, um, perhaps social standing amongst different people in the group. And in general, it just suggests that we're coming into more frequent contact with kind of culturally familiar strangers who were maybe not directly related to or don't know that well, um, but have a shared cultural system. So it's actually a very exciting time um, in human evolution, I think. And so that, that was sort of what started my whole research interest was how did people use these? What can they tell us about people living in the past? So were ostrich eggs and ostriches in general prolific in the African continent at the time, or was it a more rare resource? Well, the, the, all of the studies of the distribution of ostriches are based on the historic distributions of them. So where people saw them and then wrote it down where they encountered them in Africa. Um, in Asia, people are using the fossilized remains of ostrich eggshell and ostriches have been around for, you know, more than a million years. Mm -hmm. So their, their remains are on the landscape. It seems that in Africa, people were using ostrich eggs themselves in a variety of ways, not just for making beads, mm -hmm. but also as a water container, if they managed to get their hands on a whole one, you could eat the contents if you can get it away from the ostrich, which are, gigantic, terrifying birds um, <laughs> that you wouldn't want to tangle with. But when you encounter an ostrich nest, which I've never seen in person, um, they're communal nests. And so there might be up to 20 hens in the group and they'll all lay their eggs into this nest. And so once the chicks hatch or once, you know, eggs don't hatch and they're abandoned, you have this wealth of material there where you can gather it up at any point without any danger. 
and um, make beads or use it, you know, towards making tools or as water containers. Experimental archaeology is so interesting. And how have you gotten to recreate how they make ostrich eggshell beads? Yeah, so uh, the ostrich eggshell bead manufacturing sequence is still being undertaken in some areas of Africa where they practice traditional life ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, early ethnographers went and recorded people actually making the beads in, you know, this, this um, history of technology that extends back possibly 50,000 years. So that one is relatively known and it's still so fun to like Mm -hmm. go through and try making them, you know, using the traditional techniques. And so I have a paper where we did that and, and practicing, you know, we had students drilling the holes and everybody got blisters. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, but, I bet with stone grinding. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, but they didn't want to stop. They just wanted mm-hmm. to keep going because it was so exciting. Yeah. Um, and so a similar material that we don't have an ethnographic parallel for is land snail shell. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that we had when we were encountering these land snail shell beads and preforms in the archaeological record was, are they using the same techniques as with ostrich egg shell? Are there any differences that we can see? Would it have been the same steps? Can we see the same evidence of manufacturing? Um, Even though this is a different type of material, it's still a shell. It's got a similar thickness. And uh, so I had a paper come out recently where we combined that with archaeological data to say, actually, the sequence seems a little bit different. And it suggests that something different is going on with this material cultural tradition. It's not just translated directly from ostrich egg shell to land snail shell. It's undergone some modifications and maybe tells us something different about the people who used this tradition. What was the primary research question that drove your graduate research? Or I suppose, you know, research questions that drove your graduate research. Mm -hmm. So when I first started in my master's and I started, we we uncovered the 60 or 70 ostrich eggshell beads from the excavation. I thought, cool, I get to look into the literature. And I found there's not really um, a solid body of background research on ostrich eggshell beads. And so my initial question was, what can they tell us about (laughs) about the, the site and, you know, how people might have used the site or engaged with each other through time. And then after I finished my master's and started my PhD, the question became kind of broader where I wanted to look, I'd looked at this one site and the beads within it. And now I wanted to look at other sites and see if there was any regional change or if there was significant change through time. So ostrich eggshell beads were used for the last 50,000 years. They're still made and used today and sold in tourist shops in Africa. And, you know, have they changed at all during that time? Is there some sort of evolution that's evident on the beads themselves? And could this inform us the way that changes in lithic technology or um, ceramic decor might change through time? Are there also signs that we can test here? And so really, it was just kind of a fishing expedition. I didn't know if I would find um, any variation. And so I was quite fortunate. It turns out there was some variation. Um, (laughs) And those results, uh, I'm just putting them together right now, but they're in my dissertation and um, hopefully forthcoming into uh, a paper quite soon. Well, we'll look forward to that. And um, a lot of your research has been conducted in rock shelters or caves, which um, for the context of ancient peoples is actually quite normal because these were natural structures that ancient peoples commonly inhabited, as well as it's kind of an um, lots of times untampered with area that can help preserve archaeological materials. So what I was curious about is that there's clearly many technologies and techniques that you use to map these cave structures. What, and then as well as the technology in the lab that you use to analyze your results, let's start with kind of what what an, um, an archaeological excavation in a cave looks like. What type of mapping are you doing? How are you, you know, starting stratigraphy? I'm super interested in this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this, 
you're you're exactly right. Caves are um, a, a major place that people, especially studying in my time period, will look to in Africa. So you need um, kind of this perfect storm combination of a place where people would have wanted to stay or live for a while, and also a place that can preserve the evidence of them staying or living for a while. And so when you think about the landscape in general, that's kind of a, a narrow range of parameters you're looking for. And luckily caves tend to preserve this sort of thing. Um, so mapping. Um, some of the more um, traditional techniques can involve things as simple as using a, a compass and a measuring tape. And you can just plot out the, the coordinates, the degrees, the distances, um, use a couple of people, somebody writes it down. A more modern way is to use a total station and to map in where the edges um, of the cave floor are, any major features in them. An upgraded way, I suppose, um, that we're using in my current project is that we're using a, a 3D scanner so that we can really get the, the kind of topography of the walls and how those add to the whole feeling of the cave. And so it, it's a shockingly easy process. Um, the machine does most of the work. It just requires one person with minimal training to move it around from location to location as it scans. And then it creates a point cloud with millions of millions of points um, that you can uh, remove, delete, uh, adjust to give a, a full, almost like a visual picture that's a 3D model of the whole cave. And um, we tried it for the first time in this past field season. And I, I won't go back if I have the choice. It's, um, <laughs> it's the, the easiest way. It's fast. And um, it creates such, such a great output that, um, you know, it just provides so much more detail than the other ways. And because it's using um, lasers, it doesn't need light. And so there were some rooms that were completely dark because they're not exposed to sunlight, the roof yeah. is closed, and it could still give us, you know, the internal shape of, of those dark rooms without any light source. So it was really exciting. And, um, uh, Cave stratigraphy can be very challenging, mm -hmm. um, especially in Eastern Africa. So my, um, my African excavation experience, even though I've worked on material from um, all over Sub-Saharan Africa, my first-hand excavation experience is in Eastern Africa where deposits tend to be quite soft. Mm -hmm. um, they have very diffuse boundaries between the different stratigraphic layers. I, I'm so envious of these sites in South Africa, especially right along the coast. And I see the photos of their stratigraphies and it's like these beautiful, you know, laminated lit. You can see all of these distinctions. That, that hasn't been my experience in Eastern Africa. And uh, so it, it involves a lot of interpretation as we go. Um, I think Ian Hodder once said, um, interpretation begins at the trowel's edge and it it really is you know just feeling seeing these subtle differences as we're excavating changes maybe noting changes even in the material culture that we're seeing um, as we're excavating or in the screen uh, that it's it's one of the major challenges there's so much interesting material in eastern africa um, but it's a, a major known problem that sort of plagued uh, a lot of the region and kept kept Eastern African sites, I think, from adding as much value as the Southern African ones have. And hopefully, um, hopefully in the future, <laughs> that can change. Uh, and maybe we'll develop new techniques to be able to see these distinctions better, uh, or new people will come up with new ways. But for the moment, it's, it's fairly difficult um, to, to work up new chronologies for cave sites in Eastern Africa. Yeah, definitely. I think some um, common misconception is that you can just dig anywhere and find, you know, archaeological remains or remnants like so perfectly preserved. And in reality, climate, soil acidity, you know, all of those things really, really uh, contribute to the level of preservation and then the stratigraphy. So being able to determine what layer each rem each um artifact is from. I also remembered what I was going to say earlier, which is something that you said is sometimes archaeologists, you'll survey a site and you won't find anything. 
And I think lots of times, you know, people, we have this idea that, oh, you know, your first try has to be perfect. And someone was, oh, it was Michelle Coons, who is an interview that'll come out before yours. So it'll be great. She said, you know, I surveyed a site and I didn't find anything. And that's what my PhD was supposed to be on. So I had to twist around and find something else, you know, and I think that that's something our listeners definitely maybe aren't considering. I also, as you're talking about Africa, have forgotten how much of Africa is coast coastal and how much of you know coastal archaeology there probably is I need to look into that I bet there's some interest interesting data that would fascinate me (laughs) oh my god yeah for sure yeah so what is the technology that you use in your lab to analyze some of your results perhaps dating techniques or like you were mentioning microscopes do you have a specific microscope that you use to look at these really small beads Uh, For my beads, I just use a fairly standard microscope, even a digital microscope with a low power magnification that's quite inexpensive will do the trick. Everything up to the more fancy Dynalites or the Keyence microscopes um, that'll give you a much nicer picture. For some really, really small things or where we want to look at very intense detail Mm -hmm. um, on a, a bit of a a fish bone that was shaped into a needle, for example. We wanted a close-up look at the tip. And so for that, we would use the scanning electron microscope, which can get a view, you know, that's that you see like a 50 micron uh, bar scale in the window. Mm. So that's a very, very close-up one. There's also a lot of radiocarbon dating that goes on um, at, with material from our sites, optically stimulated luminescence dating, um, micromorphology samples, you know, there's, there's just so many new and innovative ways to examine and to find out about the past now that, you know, there's, there's probably like a hundred different methods that have been Mm -hmm. used just on the one site that I'm currently working on. For me, it's quite simple. It's a microscope, a pair of digital calipers, and then, you know, something to, to write down notes or to enter data into. Um, but there's a lot of exciting analyses and I'm getting to, to see and use and try out um, some of this equipment in my current position. Definitely. There's been so many technological innovations that have really revolutionized the field. And, you know, I look forward to myself getting to do some lab work haven't quite gotten there but I know from you know my master's and my PhD that'll be very forthcoming so I'm I'm almost I feel like I'm just surveying everyone asking them all their tips and tricks and you know it'll all manifest I'm sure you know my own projects (laughs) yeah very exciting so I'd love to talk about this project you've been involved at at the and please correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong the Panja Ya Sadi Sadi cave in Eastern Africa? <laughs> Correct me now. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Uh, so it's Panga Ya yeah. Saidi. Saidi. Panga Ya Saidi Cave in Eastern Africa. So I just want to include a little summary from the Max Planck Institute site, just because I know that some of our listeners won't be able to, I'll include links to all of these things below in the description. So if you guys are interested, please further investigate, but I'm going to include this little excerpt just to kind of frame what we're going to talk about. So the, um, the website describes it as the paleo, the paleo ecology and faunal analysis at Penga Yasadi suggests this region has been stable throughout the history of habitation in the cave and that the site was always within reach of the Indian Ocean. People at Pe- Panga Ya Sadi would have enjoyed access to a mosaic environment with diverse terrestrial as well as marine sources. Could you tell us more about the work that you've been doing at this site and what some of the archaeological evidence of early technologies you've been finding? Sure. So this is an incredibly exciting site that I've been really fortunate to be able to work on um, in my time here. So as, as we were discussing before, it, you, you need the right conditions under which to find evidence of past human occupation. And uh, one of the, the major issues with putting together a sequence of human evolution, cultural evolution, technological evolution, even biological evolution in Africa is that most sites were occupied for relatively short periods of time. As the environment changed, as the climate became unstable, conditions worsened, people would have moved away and you know, lived somewhere that was better 
at that specific time. And so in this last 100,000 year period, where a lot of innovations happened in human evolution, you don't have sites that have a continuous record over the last 100,000 years. Pangaea saidi is one of these extremely rare exceptions, where we do have relatively continuous pulses of occupation over the last now 79,000 years. Wow. And it extends earlier because we haven't reached bedrock yet. So this is a, an absolutely shocking um, site to have been uncovered because it's very, very close to the coast. So it's not a coastal site, but it's about 15 kilometers walking distance from the coastline. This is much, much closer than um, the other Pleistocene-aged stratigraphic sites in Eastern Africa. They're all much farther inland. They're all kind of more towards the Rift Valley. This is a rarity that wasn't expected to be found in that location, wasn't expected to have evidence preserved this far back or this sort of continuous sequence. So investigations at Pangaea Saidi began in 2010 and it was under a different project that was looking for evidence of Indian Ocean trade connections along the eastern coast of Africa. And shockingly, they found that the archaeological record at Pangaea Saidi continues much, much earlier than the period they were interested. And that's when it became more about um, the Pleistocene record at Pangaea Saidi. So there have been five seasons now of excavation. And as I mentioned, we still have not reached bedrock. Uh, the project geologist thinks that the sediments in our current area could be as deep as 10 meters. Um, so there, there's plenty more history to be uncovered there. Uh, current excavations have only reached about three meters down. Wow. There are some really because of the the unique history and location there are a lot of finds that are kind of um you know firsts or oldest for eastern africa the lithics at pangaea saidi have been really important because they show that crucial transition from the middle to the later stone age and that's something that archaeologists have kind of been wondering about through sub-saharan africa is there a gradual change in technologies or is it a sudden shift? Is it a, uh, a cognitive switch that gets turned on and suddenly people are more developed or is this you know, a, a new adaptation that relates to climate change? Is it a new culture coming into the area? Uh, and so Pangaea Saidi is one of these places where we can start to test these hypotheses because we have such a continuous sequence over the last 79,000 years. In a paper that is going to be forthcoming uh, in the next year, let's say, um, we're going to be reporting that the oldest evidence of engagement with coastal resources in Eastern Africa. Um, there, is, there, there are so many different kinds of analyses that are still in the works and coming out. We're looking at use wear on lithics. We're looking at um, phytolith preservation and leaf waxes. Um, there's one incredibly exciting find that I can't mention, but will be in, in the news in the next oh. you know, few months to six months, let's say. Uh, it'll be quite a big story and very exciting for Pangaea Saidi, for uh, everyone who's worked towards it, and for archaeology in Africa kind of in general. So it's, it's a, a remarkable site in a totally unique location. And I, I expect to see um, research to continue coming out from this site over the next decades. And I think it will be mentioned in the same kind of context as the more famous sites in South Africa, such as Blombos Cave, and then it'll be Pangaea Saidi Cave mm -hmm. in the East. That's extremely impressive. And I'm sure you're very, you feel very lucky to be a part of that project. I know it's, um, it's quite a lot of collaborators, right? Quite a lot of different areas of research or avenues of research going on. Oh yeah. yeah. Dozens of collaborators, hundreds of different kinds yeah. of 
examples and analyses. Which is wonderful. Like you said, it is such a big and clearly important find. There should be, you know, tons of people working on it. Um, Without divulging any details, are you finding human and faunal remains at the site? Yes. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm really looking forward. You're going to, I'm going to be, have my ears up for whatever's going to come out in the news. I'm excited now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the um, the faunal paper uh, and studying isotopes from the fauna has already come out. There's another faunal paper that's going to be forthcoming. But the fauna and the isotopes is part of what told us that this place has had such a consistent um, environment. So people living in this area had access to grassland resources, forest resources, and coastal resources, all within kind of like this five to 15 kilometer radius, which would have helped them to survive if mm-hmm. conditions became poor in the forest, they could you know, shift their focus to grassland or to ocean. And so um, the, the faunal and isotopic data is also showing relatively mild shifts in climate, whereas a lot of other areas of Africa became totally uninhabitable um, it seems like the area around Pangaea Saidi stayed relatively stable, even throughout the last glacial maximum, even throughout the African humid period, we're seeing that this was a place that people could have stayed. Now, I was just there um, about a year ago now. I was in the field. And it was not habitable for me. As a Canadian girl, it was, <laughs> it was too hot. Coastal Kenya was too hot and humid. But I guess if if people are used to that kind of thing, then maybe that's somewhere they could have lived. I couldn't have done it, but that's just yeah. well, temperatures were lower back 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 around the glacial max. I mean, the last glacial maximum, they were quite quite a bit lower. I know um, that there was you know this these huge megafauna living throughout the Pleistocene. Are those present at the at the site? I don't think we have any of the signs of the megafauna. I'd have to double check, but they are seeing um, medium to large sized mm. bovids throughout the sequence. Okay. Uh, and it seems to be a specialization on um, hunting and trapping small game. So okay. those tiny bovids like dictics and dikers, really, really small, kind of like small dog size mm-hmm. bovids. Um, we're seeing a lot of those at the site. It's very interesting. So one of the things that I want to ask you, and I've been trying to, you know, kind of ask my guests during this time where we've been at least a little more isolated, I think we've all kind of had some time to think and further, you know, learn new things. Are there any projects in the future or ideas that you have for the future that you really kind of feel inspired to get going, things that you want to accomplish in the rest of your career? I just am curious to hear. Yes, Um, there, there are dozens of ideas Mm -hmm. that I have on projects that I would like to do. Um, One kind of builds off my work on ostrich eggshell beads throughout Africa. In the current paper I'm working on, they're really telling a story of regional connections of how people responded to climate change in different regions. And now that I've looked at this and this history in Africa, I kind of want to trace their route out of Africa into Asia, because there are ostrich eggshell beads at Pleistocene sites in Russia, Mongolia, Siberia, um, China. And uh, just like there had been no previous study compiling ostrich eggshell bead data from Africa, there's been no study to do that in Asia. So I, I kind of want to look into that and see um, how do they compare to the African beads? Was, was this something that people who migrated out of Africa 50, 60,000 years ago, did they carry this technology with them? Is it something that helped them to survive in these new places, making these social networks? Uh, or was it reinvented? Does it show totally different characteristics once they're in a new area? I would really love to explore that. And I think that would be a, a useful way to move forward in a time when fieldwork is understandably limited. Mm-hmm. So being in the archeology span field, it's sort of a, a shifting time right now where fieldwork projects aren't necessarily possible. And there, there are questions being raised about um, the ethics of continuous excavations when there's so much material already stored in museums that goes unstudied, which is what my PhD was based on. Mm-hmm. And so I would be really excited 
to have a, a literature review and maybe museums-based project. Um, I could, you know, train, give talks to local scholars, and then also generate new information using these old collections. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about that, and hopefully I can work on that in the near future. I think that's a wonderful goal. I definitely do. The last thing that I wanted to ask you is a fun little uplifting end to our episode. What is a piece of advice that you live by or what is the best piece of advice you've received that you could pass on to your fellow fellow students, fellow archaeologists, but also just our listeners in general? I, I love that question. Um, one of the things that I've tried really hard to kind of cultivate in my life as an academic is that I'm not just an academic or a researcher, um, you know, I'm, I'm an entire person. And so it's been so important for me to also discover things that I like, hobbies mm -hmm. that I have, um, you know, extracurricular activities that I enjoy um, so that it doesn't become an all-encompassing uh, kind of feeling. I think it's, it's very easy for myself as an academic, for um, people that I talk to about it, for it just to kind of envelop our lives. It'll take up as much space as we give it evenings, weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm very aware of, I'm trying to be better about it, to take time for myself. Um, I think it's important that we all discover, you know, who we are as complete people and not just put so much emphasis on our research outputs. Uh, how many papers do we have? How is my mm -hmm. CV looking? It, it's easier said than done. And it's something that I'm working on. And I, I think um, uh, one way to do that is to surround ourselves with good friendships, good supportive people. It's been such uh, an inspiration for me to have these close friendships developed through graduate school, especially where, you know, we went through this experience together. We're now at similar career stages and we can just share, you know, how we're feeling about things, how we're dealing with the pandemic. Um, and it was pointed out to me recently that this is um, an important thing that not everyone does. So really <laughs> nurturing these friendships, um, especially now that we can't see people directly mm -hmm. as easily, it's, it's, I think, more important than ever to kind of love ourselves and allow other people to love us too. I think that's such a wonderful piece of advice. And, you know, part of my goal on the podcast is to show the people behind the science and not just, the, you know, the science, show the actual real people in their lives and their motivations and what inspires them. And so I really enjoyed learning about what inspired you. And I think it's so wonderful that, you know, I also have been interested in anthropology and archaeology from a young age. You know, you got to you got to complete your dream and you're out here being a wonderful, fantastic, practicing archaeologist. 